Pittsburgh has been named America's most livable city many times over by magazines and rating guides. And it is pretty great, at least for people like me. What is it like for African-American residents? And why are their experiences with police so different than mine? That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is a listener-supported project. Become a member at patreon.com slash criminal injustice. Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your personal nerd, geek, and guide to all things in the criminal legal system and still somehow working away at that day job at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Now let's start a little outside the general focus on criminal justice issues with this story. I came to Pittsburgh in 2008. My family and I were new here, but we were excited. This was the city that had staged a real comeback. After losing almost all of its steel mills and associated industry in the 1980s, it had reconceived and rebuilt itself, emerging as a center of medicine and education and advanced manufacturing. And it had won all these awards as the most livable city in America from publication after publication. We liked it. People were friendly, welcoming, glad to have us. Now, when we'd been here maybe a year, I was invited to a dinner with a number of other relatively new Pittsburgh residents. I met an African-American man there, also pretty new, here about a year, and we started to talk. He was a minister at a church, a fellow with a very accomplished background. He asked me at some point how I was liking Pittsburgh, and I went on at some length, I got to admit, about how much my family and I were enjoying it, how welcoming people had been to us as new residents. I then asked him the same question. There was a pause before he answered. He said, yes, it's been nice. The hesitation and the brief reflection I could see before answering, telegraphing to me that he had not quite had the same set of experiences that I had described. And he saw my curiosity, and he told me something that I haven't forgotten. He said, let's just say that this most livable city doesn't welcome everyone the same way. Now, this was my first clue as I got to know my new home that it presented a different face to black people than it does to white people. This is not just a phenomenon of Pittsburgh, of course. It can be seen across the United States in virtually every city and town across many different dimensions. The coronavirus has exposed these differences in the starkest terms across many subjects, particularly health care, but also employment and economic opportunity and wealth building and housing, you name it. That different face, the different experiences that black people have, not just in Pittsburgh, but across the country, is also visible in the way people experience policing. In fact, the experiences that black people have with police may be so different than the experiences that white people have that white people don't recognize them or they deny them outright. This is captured well in the words of the writer Nicole Hannah-Jones, winner of the Pulitzer Prize for her work on the 1619 Project. 
who said in one of her essays, her words directed here at white readers, quote, It's possible this will come as a surprise to you, but to a very real extent, you have grown up in a different country than I have. Close quote. Now, here's some audio of Ms. Hannah Jones in an interview with CBS discussing the link between slave patrols in the early history of this country and then in the clip you're about to hear how present-day policing uh, links to that and how it treats black Americans. Check it out. I know we in this country want to always say that slavery was a long time ago and what does that have to do with today? But we are, you know, what we see today is a direct lineage from that idea that black lives are worth less than white lives, that black people are innately suspicious, and that you have to use violence in order to control this population. So what is this like in terms of lived experience? What does it feel like to live in a city, a most livable city like Pittsburgh, in which you consistently experience a level of treatment day to day that is different from what your white counterparts would experience? What does this mean in policing especially? And how does it sound and feel when you are inside of a police department, but not really of the police? And in the present moment, of intense demands for better, safer policing, when some, in fact, want to get rid of policing altogether. Where do we go from here? Our guest today is a person who can speak to all of these questions. In his many roles, he's experienced what Pittsburgh is like for a black person. He has worked with the police, and he has considered what the city and others like it must do to become livable for all of their residents not just some. The Reverend Dr. John Welsh is the immediate past vice president and dean of students at the Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Dr. Welch began his professional career with a Bachelor of Science degree in chemical engineering and economics from Carnegie Mellon University and spent more than 15 years in various corporate positions before hearing the call to devote himself to the ministry. He began work as a pastor in a church here in Pittsburgh in 1999 and then moved into work at the Pittsburgh Theological Seminary in 2007. All along, Dr. Welch has been deeply committed to and involved in Pittsburgh as a city and especially involved in the well-being of the African-American community in our city. He has undertaken numerous roles to improve the lives of people here, among them community advocate, member and leader of the Pittsburgh Interfaith Impact Network, and 10 years as the chaplain for the Pittsburgh Police Department. In 2017, he became a candidate for mayor of Pittsburgh and used the campaign to raise issues concerning the effects of gentrification on communities of color, the violence and poverty that afflicted poor neighborhoods, and the lack of equity across multiple layers of the life of our city. It was through his work on criminal justice issues in Pittsburgh that I first met Dr. Welch when we both served on an ad hoc group to help the police department craft a policy concerning how officers should interact with immigrants. Since that work, in 2009, I've been proud to be his ally and to call him my friend. Since leaving the Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, Dr. Welch has begun a consulting practice, assisting organizations on issues of anti-racism, implicit bias, bioethics, and social justice. Reverend Dr. John Welch, welcome 
to criminal injustice. Thank you, David. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here with you. Well, thank you, John. First, uh, let's go back in time. 1999, 2000, you begin your work as a pastor here. You're out of the corporate game. You're looking out at the city and the problems and the issues it faces and that your congregants face on a day-to-day basis. Now, you heard my story in the introduction of the man, who also is a minister by coincidence, who helps me understand that our city really isn't the same for a person of color as it is for me. Did, did that story ring true to you? Oh, absolutely. It did ring true to me. And it's been well documented over the years by research from Dr. Ralph Bangs at the University of Pittsburgh to sort of uh, test to the, to the uh, situation. And and your particular take on it so often, as I've observed you and listened to you talk, has always been about equity, the idea of equity. It's been a defining concern for you. How do you define equity uh, in the context of a city or city's life? Uh, does Pittsburgh, does America have an equity problem? Yeah, America does have an equity problem. And the way I define equity in simplest of terms is uh, fairness. And so, which sets it apart from equality to some extent. I mean, sometimes you can divide things up equally, but it may not be fair to do it that way. So equity takes into account, for example, um, making sure that everyone's needs are met. It doesn't mean that everyone's wants are met, but everyone's needs are met. That is a little different than the idea of equality. And I see how you separate the two. Um, now, this is a, uh, a question, I suppose, that goes way, way far back. Is, is, is the lack of equity in America, the idea that everybody's needs are met, does that actually go back to, uh, say, the times when people were enslaved in the United States? Uh, or maybe a different question uh, is, uh, um, how does it manifest now in the more modern era government, our institutions? Where do you see equity and the lack of it now? Well, going back historically, um, it was an equality issue. And so by the mere fact that all of humanity wasn't treated equally, particularly those that were slaves, um, it sort of changed the tenor or the conversation with regards to equity. So equity presupposes that there is a, uh, an equality basis in how we relate to humanity. And so, so things do go all the way back to slavery. And even slavery was, uh, was based on an economic principle or premise. And, and that has continued to evolve all through the years. Um, the fact that economics is deeply rooted in the concerns of corporate America and just uh, city life in general. And so as policies have been put in place over the years, it, what it has done is, is scaffolded a situation where um, those who have are able to get more and those who have not are, are barely scraping. Yeah. And so as you look at our institutions now, one of the things we're hearing a lot about now in the summer of 2020, of 2020 is about institutional racism, institutional difficulties. How is the lack of equity, how is racism built into institutions as you see it? Well, we, again, slavery was an institution and slavery protected other institutions. So the institutions that were dependent on the economic engine uh, of this country. And so every institution, whether it's higher education, whether it's K through 12, uh, whether it's corporations, all of these things considered institutions, even the criminal justice system 
is an institution. Yes. Those things have various layers where racism uh, factors significantly, where, uh, where people of color were disproportionately affected, either over-incarcerated or disproportionately affected where they didn't have access to quality jobs, quality education, uh, um, quality places to live. So with all of this in mind, uh, let's think about everyday lives. As you were pastoring in your first, uh, in your first uh, religious post, and that was here in Pittsburgh, how did you see this manifesting in people's lives day to day, your congregants? Sure. Well, uh, many of my congregants uh, were not uh, highly educated professionals. I did have some that had PhDs, but I had some that, um, that were laborers. And, and so I saw the different quality of life that, um, that those two different sorts of populations had or people had. Um, I saw firsthand the struggles of those who were in unions, who were in service unions, and how they fought for, for better wages uh, and how they were challenging. Uh, management in the various companies, either from healthcare uh, to uh, to uh, food distribution companies, what have you, and so looking at the inequities between um, how people or what they had access to was was upfront and personal for me as a pastor, as I saw that in the lives of people in my congregation. I remember one time I had two two members of my congregation. One was an entrepreneur who'd done very well establishing his business, mm-hmm. and the other one. Uh, was uh, was a laborer was had done some some menial work and uh, and they had two different perspectives with regards to um, how they approached politics and and so and they also didn't get along with each other very well either. It can happen, yes. Right. Uh, one was Democrat, one was Republican. You know, you can guess which one was which. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But over time, you know, after I forced them to sit down and have a one on one with them to get to know each other's story. Uh, then they began to actually work together. But, but that kind of a dichotomy, the professional versus uh, those who were not necessarily in the professional ranks, was, was very uh, uh, upfront to me within my congregation. And as I worked with Penn, I saw that across the congregations that were part of the organization. Right, Penn, the Pittsburgh Interfaith Impact Network, now the Pennsylvania Interfaith Impact Network, a very interesting and, and uh, impactful, you might say, organization consisting of uh, of many different faiths, um, and that was uh, that was originally what brought us together. You were with Penn when we were working with the police department um, on that project, and uh, I've worked with many people from Penn uh, across my time here in Pittsburgh. Um, do you find that the faith community is closer to some of these issues of of equity and the separation between the sort of uh, prospering middle and upper classes and the uh, more difficult lives of people on the other side? To a degree, certain factions of the faith community are. I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, paint that with a broad brush and say that all of the faith community is, even though everyone within the faith community ought to be moved from, by a moral compass uh, to get to what you just articulated. But definitely the congregations that were part of Penn Congregations that are more progressive leaning certainly um, are aware of the things you just identified. So here it is in 2008. Uh, You've now moved on from your church to the seminary and you take on a new role. Uh, You become chaplain of the Pittsburgh 
Police Department. Now, you'd never been in law enforcement, had you? No, I had not. All right, so you weren't a, didn't have a police background, a law enforcement background. Uh, of course, chaplaincy is something that we could easily associate with a person who does pastoral work. Um, what is, maybe we should define for people, what's a chaplain and what is a chaplain in a police department? What are those things about? Sure. So first, chaplaincy is a form of ministry. Um, it's probably one of the more objective forms of ministry that you can find because in chaplaincy, you don't allow yourself to prescribe your own ideology and, and religious beliefs onto the people with whom you're serving. And so whether it's in a hospital or whether it's in the police department or, or even in corporate now, because corporations have, are going to have are going towards having chaplains. Huh. It's a, it's an idea of being a spiritual leader uh, within the context of what you call the service. So in my case, uh, being the chaplain for Pittsburgh police, one of the things that then Chief Nate Harper wanted us to do uh, was to be there to support not only the officers, but also to support the officers' families, but also to be there to support people in the community. So we weren't just restricted to just serving men and women in blue. We had a much broader mandate. Interesting. So as you serve in the police department, what is your experience with police officers? What did you find going on in the police department? What, what attitudes did you experience? And I'm particularly interested in some of these issues we've already touched on of equity and race. How did you see those things playing out given your up close and personal view? Yeah, so some of that has certainly evolved. Um, let me say that I worked with some fantastic officers. I'm in good relationships with some mm -hmm. even now. Uh, I stepped down. I was the head chaplain for Pittsburgh Police for 10 years, and I stepped down as heading the chaplaincy, uh, but still involved somewhat tangentially. But what I saw was a significant degree of cronyism and, and nepotism. Um, and in a system, we talk about institutions, it too was an institution to some extent. Of course. Had a system that prevented uh, that was lacking fairness because it blocked the ability of qualified african-americans to be hired as police officers and then promoted within the ranks within the bureau once they were there and uh, so those were some of the things that stuck out almost immediately to me uh, as it pertained to the issue of race um, and even when the city um, went through extenuating circumstances to create a very diverse pool of people eligible to be considered that gone through and taken a civil service test uh, and now we're in and passed and now they were eligible to be considered as possible candidates even though that was significantly diverse the classes that the police department was bringing in was not as diverse yes and i can recall this era uh hearing it from a different angle because i would often be in conversation with people say in the command ranks and they say we just can't get the candidates in we just can't find people of color to put in the pool and your experience was kind of different yeah they were actually blocking the candidates from from getting in and and this was this was due to some investigative work by the aclu vic walchek and uh they uncovered a process that um spoke deeply to cronyism and nepotism and so with this going on, I imagine with candidates of color being blocked, with promotions for people of color already inside uh, being blocked, 
um, this probably had an effect on the overall attitudes uh, within the department itself. From what I understand, it it, it did, and, and and I wasn't I wasn't as privy to that, um, or wasn't as as um, visible to me until the officers were killed in 2009 at Stanton Heights. Ah, we need to talk about that. 2009, a terrible incident in the neighborhood of Stanton Heights, which is not far from where either of us are sitting right now. Um, a man barricaded himself. Uh, there was a police call. Three officers went to the scene, uh, among others, and they were all killed. Uh, it was an awful day for the city and an awful day for the police department. Why don't you talk about that? Yeah, it was awful in many respects. It was the Saturday before Palm Sunday, as a high Christian holiday for us. And a beautiful sunny day, I recall, I was sitting in a coffee shop on the south side and uh, I saw uh, a news bulletin on the television screen uh, about this, what was something happening in Stanton Heights. And um, I received a phone call um, from um, police liaison uh, and about the incident. And so I therefore rushed to be on the scene and never seen, I'd never seen anything like that before uh, in my life. Uh, it was just a sea of officers um, very stoic, very numb uh, because of the what had happened, and understandably so. Um, here, three of their own had been had been shot and killed, and uh, and I don't and it was very traumatic, extremely traumatic to the officers, but also extremely traumatic to the people who lived in that neighborhood. To the point that uh, a week or two after the incident, my chaplains and I held a service at the Sunnyside School for the residents. Uh, just to provide some comfort for them. And um, so, you know, having people who had never heard gunshots before, people who had never seen anything like that before, were dealing with their own trauma as a result of it. So it was a very dark day for the city of Pittsburgh. Yes, it was. Um, and you still will hear officers talking about it now, uh, even years later. Stanton Heights, a neighborhood with a lot of officers living in it at that time anyway. The chief lived there, as I recall. Um, so as you went forward in your chaplaincy and as you were working with the police department, um, did either you or people you knew, other African-Americans in Pittsburgh, did they ever talk to you about their experiences with the Pittsburgh police? Yeah, some have, but, you know, I didn't really have to listen to their stories because I had my own. I mean, even as a chaplain, I was profiled and pulled over. Um, and, you know, but I had the luxury pulled over wrongly, just, just routinely or just indiscriminately pulled over. So, but I had the luxury of having my chaplain's badge on me with, to which, um, they politely apologized and went on about their way. And one time I had, uh, my, my son in the car with me and, uh, they commenced to begin questioning him, um, um, for no reason. Uh, after I was pulled over and I just politely told them, you don't need to question him. So to my badge and then they apologized and left. So I've had my own experiences. I was pulled over one time before uh, with my whole family in the car, my wife and my four children. Um, and uh, they pulled me over. I was driving a dark suburban. Um, this was back in the nineties. And they pulled me over about a block away from my house. But I, I didn't bother stopping. I just drove straight to my house as I was around the corner from it. And uh, 
scared my kids. Uh, and uh, so, you know, they uh, claimed it was mistaken identity. So I've had my own experiences, but certainly others have told me about their experiences. Even the, even the police chief was pulled over while he was the police chief. Yeah, and this is Nathan Harper, the chief, African-American man. Even he was pulled over. Let's take a quick break here. Uh, we're with John Welsh, former police chaplain here in Pittsburgh, former dean of the Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Everyone wants to keep their home and family safe. Whether it's from a break-in, a fire, flooding, or a medical emergency, Simply Safe Home Security delivers award-winning 24/7 protection. With Simply Safe, you don't just get cameras and sensors, you get the best professional monitors in the business. They've got your back day and night ready to send police, fire, EMTs, whatever you need when you need them most, straight to your door. Now, when my family had the job of selling our family home after it was empty, we knew we needed a security system we could count on. My brother, the electrician, the guy who's the most tech-savvy of all of us, he recommended we go with Simply Safe, and boy, am I glad we did. It was easy, it was affordable, and it was good. It performed and we were safe. Simply Safe protects every inch of your home. You can set it up yourself in just 30 minutes. It's really easy. Then Simply Safe's professionals take over, monitoring your home 24/7 and ready to send help the moment they get an alarm. Plus with Simply Safe there's no long-term contract. There are no hidden fees and no installation costs. Right now, my listeners get a free home security camera when you purchase a Simply Safe system at simplysafe.com/injustice. You also get a 60-day risk-free trial, so there's nothing to lose. Visit simplysafe.com/injustice for your free security camera today. That's simplysafe. S I M P L I S A F E that's simplysafe.com/injustice Hi everyone, David Harris here on Criminal Injustice. Our guest is the Reverend Dr. John Welsh. He is the former dean of the Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, former chaplain, head chaplain of the Pittsburgh Police Department. And before we paused, he was telling of us about his many experiences personally with being pulled over in an unjustified way by the Pittsburgh Police Department. Uh, and the last thing you left us with was that even the chief... Uh, an African-American man was pulled over by other police officers while he was the chief. And so this seems like it's a very common experience here for African-Americans to experience the police differently than any white person would. Absolutely. So... How did you find this manifest in other ways? I mean, you, you said sometimes other people would tell you about this, too. Oh, sure. I, I have a real close friend who's a pastor, who's an Episcopal priest, uh, who was pulled over in Churchill 
Um, they made him get out of his car. They impounded his car. Uh, he and his daughter were stranded, had to call for uh, to be uh, to be picked up. But there was really no reason for them to pull him over in the first place. They, they used as an excuse that his tags were expired. Uh, so rather than telling him, you know, you need to take your car home, they just impounded it. And so um, and even I, I was once when I was working for a consulting firm, I was on a project in the Northbrook section of Chicago, a very wealthy suburban section of Chicago. And I was driving back to my apartment one night around 1030. It just left uh, um, another coffee shop bookstore. And uh, I saw an officer sitting in the parking lot of a gas station. And I was parked, I was at a red light. I made my right hand turn. And in my mind, I said, that officer is going to pull out and he's going to follow me. And I drove down probably about 200 yards didn't see him in my rear view mirror. I had probably another 150 yards ago to get to my apartment complex. And he came mm -hmm. flying up behind me uh, with his flashing lights. And again, I was close to my residence. And so I didn't bother pulling over. I pulled into the parking lot and he commenced to ask me questions. What was I doing in Chicago or in Northbrook? Um, what was I doing in this complex? And so I asked me if I had been drinking and all of these other things. And so, you know, he had no reason to pull me over. He just decided it would be sport for him that night. Yeah. You know, I think maybe some people might wonder, well, okay, you got pulled over, asked a few questions, but, you know, no harm, no foul. Can you explain why these things are actually much more significant than that? Yeah, no harm, no foul for me. Um, but still, there's, a, there's an endemic fear within the African-American community when it comes to police officers. Um, but it was no harm, no foul for me, but it, it was more than harm and foul for Sandra Bland a routine traffic stop and she ends up dead in the custody of police officers. Um, Philando Castile, you know, uh, what was supposed to be a routine stop, he ends up dead. Um, and he expressed the fact that he had a gun and, um, had a permit and a permit and ended up dead. So, so for us, these are not, you know, it's not always a no harm, no foul. Um, and we know that when, when you and I were working on the policing policy for Pittsburgh police, uh, it, it wasn't necessarily no harm, no foul for the immigrants because it was collusion between the police officers and ICE. And so, um, so yeah, so things are a lot different for people of color uh, and have been historically when engaging police officers than it has been for white people. And that has an impact on an entire city because what's happening, I think people sometimes don't realize, is that policing is being used in those situations. Not that the individual officer is conscious of this, but the system, again, we keep coming back to, is using police power in this way, allowing it to be used in this way, and this makes the city and certain pieces of it unsafe for people of color, uh, it sends the message, we don't want you here, you're under our control, we're watching you. And that is, that takes us certainly back into equity and fairness, um, but it's even worse than that, isn't it? Oh, sure, sure. Um, I, in fact, you know, I have a friend who, another clergy person, uh, who has lived in Mount Lebanon for years and um, has told me times where he, and my, just just for our listeners, Mount Lebanon is a sort of prosperous suburb outside of Pittsburgh. Go ahead. Right. And he, had, upon moving to Mount Lebanon, had to routinely stop. He drives a black Mercedes. And uh, you might remember the story of um, uh, Johnny Gamage. Oh, of course. Yes. 
So Johnny Gamage driving a Jaguar through Brentwood section of the city of Pittsburgh stopped. Uh, it wasn't his car. It was his cousin's car who then was a, a Pittsburgh Steeler. Mm-hmm. And he ends up dying the same way that, that, uh, that uh, Garner died, you know, from asphyxiation. Uh, and so, um, so there is these, these litany of stories um, that taken place in the Pittsburgh area. So it wasn't always Pittsburgh police, but within other municipalities in the larger Pittsburgh area. And so one yes. of the things that, that I noticed within policing is that there is a significant amount of groupthink. And so when you come on board as a, as a rookie, you know, you're trying to follow the ropes and, and, and do everything you can to fit in. Right, to be successful. Right, and you're going to follow the lead of, of your superiors, the sergeants, and, and other officers that have more time. And so, um, and so you'll end up picking up bad practices, uh, but also know that you're shielded by the blue line and you're shielded by impunity. Um, and so, so impunity as far as external prosecutions for the most part, but the blue line internally because nobody's going to ride on you. That's right. And all of this together gives us a system and an institution that reinforces these things they keep happening and it doesn't fix itself it has to be fixed if it is going to work properly so all of this your concerns with equity the different experiences of african americans in pittsburgh and in so many other cities lead you to become a candidate to be mayor of Pittsburgh in the 2017 election. Now, it didn't ultimately work out for you to be elected mayor, but you had uh, a set of ideas and a kind of a vision for the city. Uh, What if, if, if you had been, if you had become Mayor Welch, what did you want to do with these two big pieces, the piece of equity and police sure well one with regards to equity would have been around the housing housing opportunities within uh the pittsburgh area um pittsburgh has been um a a good example of a significant degree of gentrification particularly in the east side of the city and so one of the things that i was pushing for in my campaign was you know there there are 90 neighborhoods but it seemed that only five of the neighborhoods was getting all the attention and development uh, and so why, what's wrong with the other 85? And so, you know, what could we have done to make sure that the West End and um, Belt Suver and Knoxville and Brighton Heights, these areas could not also get attention. Um, and so there wasn't a divide within the city that people who have live in Shadyside and Eastside and East Liberty um, uh, and those who have not are living in uh, East Hills and living in um, uh, Belt Suver uh, and other, you know, depre- um, over under under investigated under invested sit- uh, communities within the city of Pittsburgh. The other, with regards to policing, is I would have pushed really hard to make sure that some of the provisions that were put in place when Pittsburgh was under the federal consent decree would be enacted again. When we were the first city in the country to be put under federal consent decree, that's right, police abuse. And as a result of that, we, they had to put in place fair hiring practices. And so as a result of that, at one time, there were more women on the Bureau of Police in Pittsburgh Bureau of Police than any department in the country. And so that's equity for me. And, and so making sure that there was a process that would allow for anyone who qualified 
to make it through to, uh, to become a Pittsburgh police officer, first and foremost, from the communities in which they would be policing. Um, so that would have been something that would have been uh, one at the top of my priority list, because what I've noticed, not only in Pittsburgh, but in cities across the country, is many officers that are policing in urban centers don't live in those urban centers. They live outside, and so there's no connection to the people that actually live there that they're supposed to be called to protect and serve. Yes. I mean, we have had an issue here with that. Uh, for the longest time, Pittsburgh officers did have to live in the city, but that was lifted several years ago. And there has been some changeover since then. And in other cities, often police don't have to live in the areas or come from the city that they police. Um, so here we are. It's 2020. We've had the awful murder of George Floyd and Sharon Brooks and Breonna Taylor so much else that seemed to really spark a huge upsurge in anger and activism and marches and demands. And that conversation is still very much ongoing as we speak. I wonder if, if, if you were in charge now uh, and you heard people demanding defund the police, what would be your reaction? What would be on your list to do right now? Uh, I would, I would, I like to re reframe defunding to, to conditional funding, which means that if the conditions are not met, you lose your funding. And so I would work to establish uh, um, clear criteria that would warrant the funding, either exit uh, current funding levels or increased funding levels for police departments to completely take money away from the police departments. I don't think is fair without first examining how the money is spent. We do not need to have a, a mini National Guard. We have a National Guard. Right. Our police departments don't need to be National Guards. Uh, and so we don't have to militarize them as we've done since the 90s with huge federal funding and uh, um, rehabilitated military equipment. We don't need to do that. Um, and so, so, I, so I, would, I would address those areas when it comes to policing. So defunding has to be qualified. Um, because just on the surface, it's, it's, it, it has a huge headwind um, and it's not going to make much headway uh, because immediately <laughs> well when you said. Hear, if you hear defunding, it's like we're going to take all the money out of, the, out of policing. And then what you get is you get these videos, these, these commercials, as we see our current president putting up, that speaks that there's going to be rampant anarchy because we're going to take money out of the police departments. You know, that's, that can't be further from the truth. Right. And that's not necessarily what defunding is all about, but reallocating money in appropriate ways and putting conditions for which you will get funding in the first place. That is the Reverend Dr. John Welch. He is the immediate past vice president and dean at the Pittsburgh Theological Seminary and former chaplain for the Pittsburgh Police Department. Thanks for being my guest here on Criminal Injustice. It was my pleasure to join you. Thanks for having me. Wind it up like we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. And this story of a lawyer behaving badly from the law.com website from the Northeast Georgian and the ABA Journal News Online concerns lawyer Paul J. York of Cornelia, Georgia. 
Now, everyone who's ever seen a TV show or a movie has seen the character of the scrappy small-time lawyer who fights for his or her client, righting wrongs, getting the job done, no matter the obstacles. Lawyer York was clearly a lawyer in that mode, a solo practitioner who also served as the solicitor for Cornelia Georgia. And dang it, he wanted things made right for his client a woman who'd been hit with a no-contact court order telling her to stay away from her estranged husband and who had to wear an ankle monitor. As listeners to Criminal Injustice know, those monitors might be better than going to jail, but they are also expensive, sometimes hundreds of dollars a week, and the person wearing it usually has to pay. Lawyer York thought that his client should not have to wear and pay for the monitor, and he was going to get this job done. That's what we like to see in a lawyer, dedication to the client. Well, yes, always. And as Lawyer York's story teaches us, it's the way you channel that dedication that makes the difference. Lawyer York did, in fact, get the court order he needed to get the client's ankle monitor removed. The order had the required signature of both the assistant district attorney on the other side of the case and the judge. It had the correct date. It was all there. He presented it as required and everything looked great. It looked great, that is, until the assistant district attorney saw it. Something bothered her about it. She had not signed it. And she, of course, made some calls, one of which was to the judge in the case, whose signature also appeared there. And Judge B. Chan Caudell was very interested indeed. The judge scheduled a conference call with the assistant district attorney and Lawyer York. The judge issued an order following the call in which he said that the assistant district attorney denied having consented to the order or having signed it, and of course, she never gave lawyer York or anyone permission to sign her name to the order. York's response during the call apparently was to admit that he had, in fact, signed the assistant district attorney's name, but that he thought she had consented to the order, and, well, yeah... No. And then, well, let me quote here from the next paragraph of the judge's order. As with many judges, Judge Caudell refers to himself as the court or this court in the third person. Quote, The court also has concerns about what is purported to be its signature. The signature does not resemble the court's signature. The court does not recall signing the order. The date that the order was purportedly signed, March 4th, 2020, the court was not in the circuit and was unavailable to sign the order. Moreover, it is the custom practice and routine of this court not to sign a proposed consent order unless both parties' signatures are present. Additionally, this court dates each order that it signs without exception. This court does not sign an order that does not reflect the actual date it was signed by the court. 
Defense Counsel York stated in the conference call that he presented the order to the court on Monday. The court understood that Mr. York was referring to Monday, March 2nd, 2020. Out of an abundance of caution, this court had the security tapes reviewed for Monday, March 2nd and Monday, March 9, 2020. Mr. York was not seen in court on either of those days. Close quote. Oh, wow. Uh, Needless to say, the judge set aside the order getting rid of the ankle monitor, saying the order with the interesting signatures was, quote, a nullity. But as the late-night TV commercials say, wait, there's more. On July 6, 2020, in Habersham County, Georgia, Lawyer York was charged with filing a false document and two counts of forgery. Yes, those are crimes. Proceedings are pending. We'll, of course, keep you posted. I've got a feeling that disbarment proceedings can't be far behind. What's the moral of this story, boys and girls? Certain corners just should not be cut. I've got a feeling that Lawyer York will not be appearing before any judges anytime soon in a court, except in a jumpsuit. That's this edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly, and that wraps up another episode of Criminal Injustice. Subscribe to Criminal Injustice with our RSS feed if you haven't already and share us all over social media. Review us, please. A good review will help people find us. Check out our website. That's www.criminalinjusticepodcast.com for all of our interviews, our news items, and more stories of lawyers behaving badly. Got a question about our criminal legal system? Well, call it in and ask Dave. You can do that at 412-407-3389. That's 412-407-3389. Leave us your first name where you're calling from in your brief question. You can also go to the Ask Dave tab on our website and write your question out right there. Remember, we are listener supported. If you like what you hear, you want to help, you can do that. Do it at patreon.com slash criminal injustice. We deeply appreciate that support. Thanks for listening. I'm David Harris, and I'll be back with you next time. Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris and produced by Josh Rollerson. Find show notes and past episodes at criminalinjusticepodcast.com.